Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think, you know, and are they imperfect? Of course, of course they are. All human systems are imperfect. But I do think that if you look at a lot of these traditions, I think they are actually helpful when they're practiced in a loving, compassionate, reasonable way. I think they are helpful for creating greater love and compassion in the world. No. I think the second thing is, you know, I think that they help us make meaning of life. Do you know what I mean? Like they, I mean, look, why do you, you know, on your birthday, it's the anniversary of your birth that you have a cake with candles and you sing a song and you have presents. Like that's stupid. That's meaningless. Why are you doing that? There's no rational thing there, but like it brings joy and meaning into your life. Like it just does, right? It's, uh-huh. it's a ritual. It's a tradition. It's, you, know, you associate with these rituals some feelings of joy and connection. And I think that a lot of religious rituals, they do that. And they help us mark moments in our lives that are difficult. They give us a way through them. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Srini. I hope you're liking this episode of The Unmistakable Creative. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sarah, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was introduced to you by way of one of our former guests, Michael Roderick, and um, he told me a little bit about the work that you did as senior staff writer for Michelle Obama. And then I found out about your book here all along, and I thought, okay, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Having read it and having my own issues with religion, having grown up Hindu, I thought, yeah, this is going to be uh, you know, one of those conversations that I think will lead us into a lot of interesting directions. But before we get into your work, um, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for work, and how did that shape and influence the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Oh, a great question. So my mom was a social worker, and she actually stopped working outside the home once my brother and I were born and transitioned to full-time, more than full-time work in our home, in our community, volunteering, caring for my brother and I. My dad was a lawyer for about 45 years and at the age of 73, decided to go back to school and get a master's degree in a topic that he was passionate about. And now he's looking into writing his own book. He's a really amazing guy. I think in terms of how it shaped me, you know, I think I saw with my dad just the value of incredible tenacity. Right? Like I think that I think the trick of being a good lawyer is just a certain kind of relentlessness. Where I, I saw how my dad would be willing to read the six hundred page treaties to find the footnote on page four ninety seven that would really help his client in a deal that he was making. Right? I, I kind of saw that intensity and that determination and that attention to detail. I think is oftentimes kind of looked down on like, oh, she has great attention to detail as if it's sort of a small and kind of like not really impression, not really impressive. You want the big visionary. But Mm -hmm. I think what I've seen in over a decade of politics is the the details really matter and the details add up to something extraordinary. So I think that's, that's what I learned from, from his career. Mm. So that relentlessness, I think that, you know, I was thinking about this, uh, as we become older, we tend to lose that. I think we become less risk tolerant. And I've always wondered why we don't even teach risk tolerance as an essential life skill in school, because it seems like pretty much everything you want in your life, from your career to falling in love, everything requires risk of some sort. Why do you think that people lose that? And how do you think that they can get it back? Yeah. You know, I think that they lose it. And I certainly see that in myself too, because they have more and more to lose. You know, as you get older, you have, you know, oftentimes you have a family that you're caring for, or you have financial obligations that are, are quite significant. And you, you are a little worried about, about hurting other people. You know, I think more people become implicated in your life, you know, when you're young and single and you know, somewhat free in that way, there are fewer people who can be hurt by your by your risk taking. You only hurt yourself if you fail. Mm-hmm. But you know, as you get older, I think others are implicated. And I think for me, what has been most helpful in understanding and processing risk is that you know, instead of just looking at the risk of doing X, which can be quite scary, I think about the risk of not doing X. People mm-hmm. often don't think that way. And I think about this specifically when I was in law school, and I had an opportunity to work on a campaign in Arkansas, presidential campaign. And you know, law school was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So we're talking about kind of a long distance thing. You know, not going to be the best class attendance. I was essentially going to have to go back and forth, but really a lot more forth than back. You know, I never skipped a class in my life. 
it was definitely a risky thing to do to move to Arkansas for a semester, essentially, and fly back for final exams. And I felt really anxious about this. And I was thinking, this is risky. You could get in trouble. You could fail your classes. You know, all of these things that were so scary. And then I thought, well, what are the risks of not doing this? I thought, well, okay, I'm on this path to becoming a lawyer, which is a perfectly impressive and prestigious path and one that is clearly not mine. I'm not passionate about the law. I'm not particularly good at this. I'm passionate about politics and speech writing. So the risk of not doing this is that I continue along a path that isn't mine. And that won't look good. Risk of doing this, getting in trouble, getting bad grades. Suddenly I was like, wait, those risks are very trivial in light of the risk of not doing this. So I think you have to understand there's risks on all sides of doing something. Um, and we often don't frame it that way. Yeah. How in the world did you end up on a path that wasn't yours to begin with? And what, if any, advice did your own parents give you about making your way in the world? Was it kind of the traditional sort of Jewish or Indian Asian kid narrative of become a doctor <laughs> or engineer? I mean, you went to law school, so. Right. You know, my parents have always, always been so supportive and told me, like, do what you love, right? They, they've always been incredibly supportive in that way. The interesting thing is, so I, you know, I interned in the White House when I was in college, and I interned in Vice President Al Gore's speechwriting office, and I, I loved it. I just felt like, this is what I think I want to do. And so I got my first job out of college. It was the assistant to the speechwriter, to the lieutenant governor of Maryland, and I was miserable. I just said the commute was terrible. Just, it just wasn't the right job for me. I quit after nine months. I got a job as a speechwriter for a U.S. senator. And after nine months, they said to me, you should go to law school. Like, we hear you've applied that would be a better fit for you than speech writing. Which was, you know, I didn't know how to write. I was very young, very little experience. And that was kind of devastating to me. I just felt like, okay, I'm clearly not meant to be a speech writer. Fine. I will go to law school. That seems like, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of liberal arts person. It kind of almost seemed like a, a liberal arts graduate degree, right? Like it would keep my, op- my options open. I care about public service and politics. It felt just kind of like the thing to do. You know, Bush was president. I'm a Democrat weren't really many government jobs I could do. And so I kind of just slid into it. And, you know, I don't regret it. I, I, you know, I basically, all of my speech writing jobs flowed from a classmate I met in law school who used to write for Clinton. And he taught me how to write and we freelanced together. He got me a lot of jobs. I don't regret it. I met some wonderful people, but, you know, I wouldn't say that that job helped me as a speech writer. Sorry, that that degree helped me as a speech writer. Um, So, you know, it's sort of, you know, I think that as I stepped away from that path, which seemed kind of safe in a generic, vague way, my life has been more and more fruitful. You know, I think like working on that campaign, I think, frankly, I worked for two years in the White House as a senior speech writer to President Obama, which was amazing. He's extraordinary. After two years, I switched over to being Michelle Obama's head speech writer. That's a very strange career move. Like mm-hmm. most people would think of that as a demotion in the White House to go from the West Wing to the East Wing. But I knew it was the right thing to do because I knew Mrs. Obama. I'd worked with her on the 08 campaign on a, a speech. And I, I just I just felt so much more at home in her voice. I was so much more interested in the topic she was writing about. And I started to have this sense that I was kind of fighting the tide writing for him. Like mm-hmm. I was a little bit swimming upstream. Like I wasn't as at home in his voice. I wasn't as passionate about the issues he was talking about. I think it's very easy to kind of look at your life from an external point of view and think like, okay, what looks good? What's prestigious? What will people really think is amazing without really asking yourself, like, where is this hitting me internally? And I knew that it was amazing to write for the president, but internally I knew I was fighting myself. And I just thought like, I'm going to stop fighting myself. I'm going to stop being a mediocre speechwriter for him. And I'm going to go over and do my best to be a great speechwriter for her. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Some of my colleagues were like, what are you doing? Why are you demoting yourself? But for me, it was like, oh, this is where I need to be, right? I, this is where I can most use my talents. And I don't really care how this looks to anyone else. Like, I know this is where I can do my best work. Mm, wow. So I definitely want to spend a lot of time talking about um, the whole experience of being a speechwriter. One other question around parents and family. Do you have siblings? I do. I have a brother. Okay, what uh, have what has his career turned out like, and how does it contrast? And do you think that your parents uh, gave you different advice? I'm always curious, like you know, two two siblings always raised by the same parents, and I'm like, how do they turn out so wildly differently? And I wonder what that's been like in your life. <laughs> My brother is an amazing guy. He's also, you know, I think very successful. Like he, you know, he went to business school and he does research now. And I think 
you know, something that I, the gift that I think my parents gave us is for us to each choose careers that were meaningful for, for us. I think they just, you know, at the end of the day, they've always said like, it's not, you know, we're not expected to do things to please them, but to honor ourselves. And that's, that pleases them. I think that that's, I feel so incredibly lucky to have that privilege. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people like me who have this privilege of an incredibly loving and supportive family, like you don't realize how many millions of miles ahead in the race of life that that sets you. You know, I think just to, to grow up in a family where I never, where every minute of my life, I felt loved, I felt safe, I felt respected. I mean, like the base and the foundation for life that that gives you, it's just extraordinary. It is just so extraordinary. And I, I have many friends who sadly didn't have that advantage and they've had to work really hard and they've had a lot of struggles that I haven't had in order to you know, just live daily life. So I, I feel incredibly, incredibly lucky. Mm, wow. So one thing I wonder, I mean, particularly with the current state of politics, um, I mean, obviously there's no way I think we can get out of this conversation without talking about it, but yeah. uh, one, what are the misperceptions that you think we, as people who just, you know, kind of experience government and politicians and public you know, figures through media have about the reality of the situation uh, in terms of what's going on, whether it's this administration or another one? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that oftentimes people get confused between reality and news and they're two different things. You know, if, if, if our media were simply reflecting reality, it would be extraordinarily boring. Be like (laughs) today, hundreds of millions of people got up and ate breakfast and took care of their children. Like it just, it would just be really mundane and there'd be sprinkles throughout it. There'd be really, you know, scary, sensationalist, interesting, inspiring, horrifying things, right? That would all be sprinkled throughout it, but it just, the vast majority of it would be pretty banal, but that's not news. News isn't reality. News is news. It's the things that are interesting, sensationalist, unusual. And people begin to think that that's reality, that all reality is violent and scary and everyone's abusive and power hungry. And it's just a little bit distorted. So I think that sometimes with media, they're really focusing on the news of something. Like what's newsy? What's interesting? And you know what? It might not be that interesting that we just got a lot of money for highway funding. That might not be newsy or exciting, but man, is that important in people's everyday lives to be able to drive safely to your job, to be able to like drive your kids around safely. It's like, so I just think sometimes that news versus reality distortion is something that can kind of um, slant the reality of what's happening. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that when I when I look at um, news now and media now, like I never watched the news up until this last administration. And now I'm like, wow, this is a train wreck. Like I can't stop watching this because it, it legitimately is kind of entertaining. And I wonder, you know, from your perspective as somebody who's been on the other side of this, do you think that the media has behaved irresponsibly and not um, you know, portrayed the reality of what's going on. Because when I look at sort of mainstream media, I'm like, wait a minute, the purpose of mainstream media isn't to inform the public, despite what it might appear like. The purpose of mainstream media is to sell ads. Mm. Yeah, I think that there is. So I think, you know, I think there's a difference between balance and truth. And, you know, when I see this kind of attempt, these attempts at balance, where it's like, here's a climate scientist and here's a climate denier and they're both side by side on the screen. I mean, that's a really extreme example. And they're both going to get, you know, three minutes to scream and yell at each other. It's like, that's not, that's not truth. Right? Climate denial is not truth. That's actually false. It's factually wrong. It's a lie. Yet that gets airtime. And I, I think that unfortunately with this administration, just to report the news almost sounds negative. I mean, it sounds negative because so much of the news, so much of what, you know, the president is a deeply unwell you know, he's just a deeply unwell, cruel, vicious, incompetent guy. And just to report that straight makes it sound like you have a negative bias towards him. Yeah. And so I think that's a real challenge that media is sort of like, we have to be balanced. We have to be, but there actually isn't balance here. Like what is happening is evil and corrupt and depraved and horrific. And I think it's just really hard to report that without seeming biased. Yeah, you mean Frontline had this really interesting documentary uh, that came out just a week or two ago called The Great Divide, and it was in two parts. And it was interesting to see a lot of the things that I don't think had ever been put into the news before, like literally the day after the election, it was just, you know, attack after attack on this guy. And it was like, wait a minute, this happened last night. And apparently he had every intention of taking the job seriously, but 
you know, that he returned to his old ways almost immediately because it was just like, oh my God, I'm being attacked out of the gate. But like to listen to the people around him talk about it, they said he was very well aware of the gravity of what had happened. He saw that this was going to be very serious. Where it went off the rails is, is another topic entirely. I feel like we could talk about that for hours. But what I wonder is having worked in the administration that you did and, you know, being a Jewish person and, and witnessing the contrast between these two things. I mean, you've obviously given us some insight into what you think about this, but, you know, like when you look at the contrast between the two, you know, what do you think and what are the people that you worked with in the past think? I mean, this is just something that is so far afield from anything that is normal and acceptable and okay. I mean, I, you know, I know people from the Bush administration, right? I, I know George W. Bush's administration. We disagree on policy, but I, I recognize them as legitimate actors in the political world, right? These are people who care about democracy and civility and decency and law. And I think they made some pretty terrible mistakes. They probably think we made terrible mistakes. Okay. But, you know, I, I feel like we were doing the same thing. We were engaging in the same incredibly important process. I look at the Trump administration and just the sheer volume of lies that come out of it every day. I don't, it's breathtaking. I mean, I think about in the Obama administration, we, for every speech I wrote, it was fact-checked to within an inch of its life by a team of researchers. So if I started a speech with Mrs. Obama saying, Hey, everyone, it's great to be here in this city with my friend, Mayor so-and-so. She's doing a great job. I would get back an email from our researchers, flag. Mrs. Obama has declared the mayor, quote, a friend. But how often do they really see each other? Are they merely acquaintances? And flag, Mrs. Obama has said the mayor is doing, quote, a great job. But we just read two articles criticizing the mayor's infrastructure plan, suggest changing to good. Like, that's the level of scrutiny that we had in the Obama White House, that was the commitment to the truth. And I just, I, I see no commitment to truth. I see no commitment to decency. I see a level of cruelty that as a Jew, I, you know, it's like, if there are any people in the history of this planet who should be aware of the dangers of cruelty, of bigotry, of a political leader whipping up animus against minorities, um, should be Jews. <laughs> like I, I'm pretty, I've seen this movie before. It doesn't go well. And, you know, I think it's really important for people from all minority groups to understand that when a president is whipping up animus against Muslims, against immigrants, against people of color, it affects all of us. You know, you'll notice that white supremacists and neo-Nazis, they're not like, oh, I adore Muslims, but I hate immigrants. I love people of color, but man, I hate Jews, right? That, that's not how it works. No. They're universal haters. So when they get inspired and emboldened by their president, it affects us all. Hmm. Wow. So I knew, you know, having read the Michelle Obama book and, and you having been a speechwriter, I, I remember looking at that book and even in the publishing world said like, this is a unicorn of a book. We've never seen anything like this. Cause I remember the week that it came out. And I remember the day I saw the announcement of how big the advance was that she and Barack Obama got paid. And I thought, well, you know, that's nice. And it's basically like, you know, I always tell people publishing is like venture capital. Basically what happens <laughs> is, you know, they make a bunch of bets and Tim Ferriss and Michelle Obama make up for the losses they take on the rest of us. Uh, it's fair. It's very fair. You know, that being said, you know, I, I remember thinking I was like, some of my friends like, this was ghostwritten. I was like, there's no way this was ghostwritten. Um, this is breathtaking. It really yes. is. Beautiful. So I wonder, you know, working up close with somebody who is such a talented writer and somebody who is so charismatic, um, one, what did you learn about human behavior from somebody like that? And what did, how in the world do you channel the voice of somebody who is that eloquent and that um, well-spoken and, and, you know, as a speechwriter, because ultimately that's effectively what you're doing, right? Exactly. That is, I'm so glad you said that because whenever people say, oh, you scripted Michelle Obama, you put words in her mouth. Like, I find that very triggering as the young people say, like, have you seen this woman? <laughs> Michelle Obama knows who she is. She knows what she wants to say and she knows how she wants to say it. She is brilliant and a, just a brilliant speaker and writer in her own right. And so your job as a speechwriter, because she doesn't have infinite time and there are things that are more important for her to be doing, your job as a speechwriter is to sit down with her and say, I would say, what do you want to say? And she would say, okay, here's the main point that I want to make in the speech and here's how I want to get there. And she would just dictate paragraphs and paragraphs of beautiful, vivid, edgy, gorgeous language, stories, ideas, themes, statistics. And I would type as fast as humanly possible on my laptop because I wanted to get it verbatim because so much of it was so good. And that would be the beating heart of a speech. 
So I'd go back to my desk. I'd rearrange that. You know, I'd work on that in a draft. I'd wordsmith it. I'd structure it. I'd add some stuff, research, whatever. I would get that into a draft. I'd send it around to colleagues who would send me fact-checking edits, questions. You know, they would look at it. And then I would send it to her. And then we would go back and forth. (laughs) She would edit. I would edit her edits. She would edit my edits. And just this back and forth. She would oftentimes just like read it out loud so that we could hear it. And that then we'd be able to hear, oh, the section is um, too in the weeds. It's not, we're missing the story here. Or the sentence is clumsy or whatever. But, you know, she's just like channeling her. It involves getting just, it it really is channeling her, right? It's working with her. It's getting, you know, it's just assisting her in the work of her using her own voice. So it just, Mm -hmm. I, I learned her voice just by over time, just by spending a lot of time with her, hearing her feedback, getting her comments. I, you know, I, I still in some way have her voice in my head when I, even when I write my own stuff, yeah. I can sort of hear the voice saying like, Sarah, you know, this, this transition's a little sloppy here. How can we <laughs> tighten this up? Or like, okay, we're getting, we're in the weeds here. This is yeah. just, you're missing the story. And that's a gift. Yeah. What about the human behavior aspect of this? Because oh, I, mean, yes. I remember looking at this when I read the book, I thought to myself, I'm like, and there's one moment I remember after the book came out and I'm sure you might've seen it. It was the Jimmy Kimmel interview when she walked out on stage and it took almost a minute and a half for the audience to stop clapping before he could even start the interview. And I <laughs> thought to myself, right. <laughs> wow, like that is an incredible effect to have on other human beings. And yes. I remember my dad said, oh, this book is a bestseller because she's a former first lady. I said, no, it's a bestseller nope. because <laughs> Michelle Obama. Hillary couldn't have written a book like this. Neither could Barbara Bush. Like the, that's just, I know this because I know books. Um, but I wanted to ask you about that, particularly because of that Jimmy Kimmel moment. Like, what is it about her that makes her this way? I, my theory, and, and I think I'm, I think I'm right about this. It is her relentless authenticity. And it's like, that's such a cliche. It's like, oh, authenticity. Yay. Um, might be a cliche, but that's because it's true. You know, in the eight years that I worked with her, I just saw a woman who was constantly returning to her own truth, who would get advice from people sometimes and say, well, first ladies do this. You should do it this way. And she would say, okay, thank you. I appreciate that input. But I'm, I'm me. And, and I'm, I, I understand that's the way it's traditionally done, but we're going to do this differently. So yeah, we'll have the fancy concert at you know 7 p.m. here at the White House, but we're going to ask those performers to come eight hours earlier and do a workshop with children from inner city DC who are going to come in and they're going to be in this White House and they're going to feel like it's their home because it is. And these performers would be like, of course, I'm happy to. And she was, she was like, this is how we're going to do it now because that's who I am. Right. This is my background, and I'm going to make this house feel like the people's house. Right? So I think that you know, when she was when I was working with her on speeches, she was always asking herself, like, what is the deepest and most important truth I can tell at this particular moment? You know, I think, and that's why I always give. I think the best advice I can give as a speechwriter is say something true. Like, really, just stop and ask, what is actually true here in this moment? And I think that. So many of the moments where people remember her so fondly are the moments where she said something deeply true, whether it was about race, whether it was about our cultural, our culture of sexual assault in the speech that she gave in October in Manchester, New Hampshire in 2016, where after the Access Hollywood tape broke with Trump proudly bragging about sexually assaulting women, you know, she gave a very visceral, very honest, very true speech about the just the brutal harm that this uh, the rape culture takes on women and men, people of all genders. And, um, you know, I just think back on that as something that was very powerful. It's kind of an early Me Too speech. If you go back and read it now, you realize, wow, this was actually kind of what the, you know, a precursor to the Me Too movement. And I, um, I think that relentless commitment to her truth is very important. Wow. So speaking of the Me Too movement, I mean, you mentioned that I, I know from having read the book, you also worked in, uh, you know, with the Clintons as well. And so when you see, you know, sort of the combination of those two things and a president who, you know, in some ways has kind of been guilty of some of the things that are, you know, talked about in the Me Too movement. As a woman, how do you see all of that, particularly as a woman who had been, you know, somebody who worked in both of these situations? Wait, sorry. So ask that again. So as I understand from from, um, reading the book, you've spent time working with the Clintons as well, correct? Right. Uh, With Hillary Clinton, yes, in her 08 campaign. Okay. So having also known, you know, sort of why Bill Clinton got impeached in the wake of Me Too, particularly as a woman, how do you view, you know, their uh, role in politics and kind of, you know, who they are at this point? Yeah. You know, 
I think a lot about Hillary's role in politics, right? Because she, she strikes me, you know, she's one of my heroes. I love her. It was an honor to work for her. And she strikes me as someone who is always ahead of her time in a way that people just weren't quite ready for it. She's just so heartbreaking. You know, she is in the nineties when she was, you know, this woman who was carving out her own space as a first lady and really trying to challenge the, the kind of limited role of first lady, people just weren't ready for it. And there was this backlash against her. And you know, she's running for president as a woman in 2016. And I almost think she was like a little ahead of her time then, although she did get 3 million more votes than Trump. So maybe not, right? But I think that she's the one each time I feel like she breaks the barrier and then other people behind her benefit from it. You look about uh, uh-huh. you look at Elizabeth Warren, you don't hear a lot of talk about like, can a woman be president? That was all the talk in 2008. Uh-huh. And so I think there's this sort of tragic aspect of it. And I am so grateful to her for that. Right, for being that person who breaks the barriers but doesn't get the benefits. That's a, it's a pretty noble thing to do. Yeah. So I want to ask you about something that um, came up in the Frontline documentary that I was just telling you about. Uh, Megyn Kelly was one of the people that they had interviewed, and they've talked mm-hmm. about that moment when you know Trump decided to hit back with the three women who accused Bill Clinton of, of you know rape. And she said, you know, the reality was what that moment did for the Trump campaign was to paint the picture that this woman is no saint either. Um, mm. and I wonder as somebody who has probably a far more, you know, upfront knowledge about this than I would, what you would have to say about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I just regarded that as such a, you know, it was just such a gross low moment and just very vintage Trump. And you're right. Like, like nobody's perfect, but the problem with our media is that they can't, um, it doesn't really work well when you have Trump who has thousands of incidents, illegal behaviors, cruelty, like each one of which would have just destroyed another candidate or president. But when you've got a thousand of them, they overwhelm our brains, right? They're, they're just, each one becomes trivial because each one of them takes up one thousandth of the space. And then when you have Hillary, who like any human being has like a few little flaws, each of those few little flaws takes up one third of the space. So they seem magnified. They seem huge. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is the balance of the media, right? It's like, a thousand cruelties and depravities by Trump, but her emails, right? It's like, so I actually just think proportionally, it, it, it had a disproportionate, a disproportionate resonance because of the way our brains work. But compared to Trump, it's like, are you kidding me? This isn't even in the same ballpark. So, I mean, is there a solution to this from a media standpoint? Like, what is the responsibility of the media here at this point? I think this is very tough. And I don't, you know, I don't know what the solution is, yeah. but I do think the media just understanding that the impulse to balance is a lie. Mm. It's just, it's a lie. You're just telling a lie. You know? and, and I think that is, and I know you want to avoid looking biased, but to give her emails the same attention hysteria as Trump's a thousand depravities, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. You know, I mean, I understand there, there's got to be some attention to both of them, but this is not reasonable at all. Right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, let's do this. Let's uh, let's shift gears and let's get into... Um the book itself. Um, I mean, there's so many things that are fascinating about this. I think that, you know, what I told you, I think we had these really kind of hilarious text message exchanges. And I kept telling you, I was like, my primary issue with organized religion, particularly because I'm Indian, is that it's time consuming. Like if you've been to an Indian <laughs> wedding, you know this, right? Like everything in Indian oh, religious yeah. traditions is incredibly like, you know, it just takes hours. And I'm like, why does this take three hours of listening to some, you know, white guy who thinks he's Indian talk to us in Sanskrit and nobody walks away having learned anything. And I'm like, this is really mind numbing. Uh, So I I think that one of the things that I really loved was when I saw the subtitle of your book, you you know, finding meaning, spirituality, and a deeper connection to life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there. So I think it was that very last line, you know, it's, it's sitting here right in front of me. What is it that prompted you to finally choose to look there of all the places that you could look? Yeah. So I grew up with a very kind of minimal Jewish background, went to services on the main Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I really identify with the the length issue. You know, these things can be like three or four hours long. A lot of Hebrew, very boring. Was not into them as a kid. Went to Hebrew school, didn't love that. Had a Passover Seder, also not interesting. And I had my bat mitzvah, the Jewish coming of age ceremony. And I was like, I'm out, thanks. You know, I'm Jewish by heritage, Jewish by culture, but I don't have to like do this, right? I don't have to like practice <laughs> Judaism. Yeah. yeah, like thanks, but no thanks. 25 years later, I broke up with a guy I was dating and I just had a lot of time on my hands suddenly. <laughs> like it was like the you know, probably fifth or sixth year of the White House. You know, I kind of had my job you know, mainly under control. It wasn't as crazy as at the beginning. And I was just lonely and kind of bored and anxious. And I happened to hear about an intro to Judaism class at a local Jewish community center. And I honestly, I just signed up on a whim. I was not on an epic spiritual journey. I was not looking for like solutions to my life crises. I was literally like, all right, I'm Jewish. My name is Sarah Hurwitz. And I know almost nothing about Judaism. I should learn something. (laughs) It could have been been like a ceramics class or a karate class. I don't know. Maybe I'd be a black belt by now. Who knows? But I just signed up on a whim. Class was a very standard class. But I, I was blown away by what I learned. You know, I think if you're a Jew like me and your only points of contact are a couple of boring synagogue services in your synagogue and Hebrew school and a boring Passover Seder, like you don't walk away thinking like this is the this has deep meaning for my life. But coming to it as an adult and actually studying Jewish ethics, Jewish spirituality and theology, you know, the real deep meanings behind our holidays and rituals, I just thought there is so much wisdom here. 
for how to be a good person and how to lead a meaningful life and how to find profound adult spiritual connection. Not God is a man in the sky, controls things and punishes you when you're naughty, which I don't buy, never did, never will, but a real sophisticated, thoughtful kind of adult spirituality. And I, I couldn't believe it. Like, like, where has this been all my life? So I took other classes. I read hundreds of books. I studied with rabbis. And I just eventually decided that I wanted to write the book that I wish I'd had when I first started learning. Uh-huh. You know, one which... Uh, one minute. Sorry, my air conditioner is... And my heater is very loud. I'm just going to turn it on. Okay. Um, sorry, I thought it were in. You know, I decided that I wanted to write the book I wish I'd had when I first learned, started learning. One that covers the basics of Judaism while also also unearthing the deeper wisdom about what it means to be human. But Judaism has so much crowdsourced wisdom by millions of people over thousands of years about what it means to be human, not just for Jews, but for people of all backgrounds, no background. You can be an angry, secular atheist and still get a lot out of my book. So that was that was my goal. Mm, wow. Why do you think that you were open to it at this point in your life? Uh, do you think it was because of the breakup? And do you think that this whole idea that, you know, um, what Soren Kierkegaard says that, you know, all changes preceded by crisis is actually true? Because I feel like, uh, you know, Bill Cosby, bad example, I realized once a joke that old people get uh, religious because they want to get into heaven. And I've noticed that my parents have become <laughs> much older as they have, you know, or much more religious as they've become older. Uh, so I wonder, you know, why do you think you were open to it at this point in your life? And do you think it takes some sort of a crisis for us to open ourselves up to this possibility? You know, it's so interesting. I think that's a little bit, you know, I think there can be truth in that for people of all religious backgrounds where a crisis happens and secular wisdom just isn't all that impressive. You know, I think you, you look at the secular wisdom around life crises and transitions and it's terrible, right? It's like, oh, you're having a baby. That's a big life transition. Like buy things, consume things. You need this crib. You need this thing. It's like, whoa, whoa. That, you know, it's, there are always market solutions, right? It's like you're getting married. Ooh, that's a big life transition. You need the best wedding and you need a videographer and flowers. It's like, again, a market solution. Someone you love dies. Again, a market solution. Buy this casket, have this fancy funeral. It's like, these are big moments. And I think often when people are in these transitions, this secular market-oriented wisdom, not so wise, right? Not so helpful. Yeah. And so, you know, I think for me, I don't necessarily think for me that that moment of crisis like opened me up. It wasn't, it just wasn't like that. It really, I just, I think it was more, I just had some time on my hands and was really intrigued by what I found. I also think it's almost a little bit of a Christian narrative where it's like, you go into crisis, then you find Jesus and you're saved. And like, that's just not so much the Jewish narrative, right? I think that's more of a Christian narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to a couple of quotes that I wanted to ask you about in in the book. You know, one of the things you said is, "I understand why people have an instinct to run as far as possible from organized religion, or just don't believe it's worth their time." And I told you the, the time thing was a big issue for me. Um, <laughs> you know, as somebody with a short attention span, I was like, "This is ridiculous. I don't even understand what these guys are saying." And it's funny because when I was in India, I actually picked up translations of the Bhagavad Gita and like lessons from the Mahabharata and Ramayana. And I was thinking to myself, if somebody actually taught this in this way, it would be a hell of a lot more interesting. Like this is like the yes. ultimate self-help book, but the priests at Hindu temples bore us to death with nonsense that most of us can't even understand. <laughs> so one, you know, and, and then the other thing I think for me that I found really just, uh, you know, like my, my big resistance to organized religion was I felt that it was a mechanism to control my behavior. Mm, yes. And look, I really understand that resistance. And the reality is, and I'm just going to be really blunt, that in our society, the loudest religious voices are often the most hateful, the most bigoted, and the most stupid. And those voices have really hijacked religion away from some of the many, many, many voices that are deep, searching, loving, compassionate, doubting, intellectual. There are plenty of those voices out there, but they're not screaming on TV. They're not out there condemning gay people. They're actually doing the work of faith. Right? acts of love and compassion and kindness. They are out there actually clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and welcoming in those in need. They're building strong families and communities. They don't have time or interest in going around condemning and shaming people, right? but they just don't get very much attention. That's not, our media doesn't run a lot of stories. It's like, hey, this mosque went and volunteered at a homeless shelter. Right? That's just not, you're not going to see that. That's not headline news. It's not going to be on the evening news. Um, so I really get that. That resistance. And I think when religion is filtered through a lens of cruelty, shame, 
um, abusive power. That's such a distortion yeah. of, of these traditions. And look, let's be very clear. Every single religious tradition has ugly stuff in it. They're very old. <laughs> these traditions are very, very old and they're human created traditions. There is ugly, awful stuff way back there in all of them. It is the job of truly true people of you know, what you can call them faith, of culture, whatever you want to, you know, people who practice these religions, you have to look at their core animating ideas, which I think are love, compassion, kindness, all that. And you have to filter the rest of them, the rest of the religion through that lens. And yes. things that aren't filtered, that don't catch in that lens, that aren't, that you know, oh, that's outdated, that's extraneous. Yeah. You know, I look at, you know, in Jewish tradition, there's plenty of, you know, way back, there's plenty of ideas about women that are crazy in today's terms, right? That's why you know, 90% of American Judaism has gotten rid of those gender distinctions. Women are rabbis. There's no, there's nothing that a woman can't do that a man can do in 90% of American Judaism. Same thing with LGBTQ people, right? We marry gay, gay couples. We ordain gay rabbis. Like that's just, you know, except for Orthodox Judaism, which is 10% of American Judaism, the other 90% of us are, you know, have done the work of, of reinterpreting this tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just... It's a lot like constitutional interpretation. Either core animating ideas of our constitution about freedom and liberty and justice. And at some point, took us way too long, but at some point, people realize, hey, you know what? Slavery, not consistent with those things. Women not voting, not consistent with those values. And we amended it. So, you know, that's the work of religion as well. Yeah. So one other thing that you said, and I think this is particularly relevant given how we started this conversation before we hit record, you said, I don't believe in a God who can intervene to change events in my life. I generally find attempts, no matter how thoughtful and well-intentioned, to square such a view with reality and explain why God permits things like genocide, child abuse, and pandemics to be both unpersuasive and disturbing. And you know, as I was saying to you before we hit record, when my cousin and I went to the temple on New Year's, he had the, the, the you know, foresight to say, I think these people are more superstitious than they are religious. I think that they show up there with the belief that they're worshiping a God who can intervene to change events in their lives. I know this because my mom will say, oh, we do this puja so that, you know, somebody will get engaged or, you know, you'll have this experience happen. And on the flip side of that, there is this weird sort of thing that, you know, we have where there are events and circumstances in our lives that we can't explain or understand. I'll I'll give you an example. I remember hearing uh, my friend Jonathan Fields talked to somebody on an interview once and he said, Ganesha is the remover of obstacles. So I went home and, and I was having a really bad year financially. And I told my mom, I was like, can I have a Ganesha? And she was stunned. And literally weeks later, I got booked for a speaking gig after a year of not um, being booked for anything. And so part of me is like, oh, is that faith or is that superstition? Mm, it's a beautiful question and a really important one. You know, I just, I can't square the, re- the idea that there is a God who intervenes in our life with what I see out in the world. Because if that's true, if there is a God who's controlling things and intervening, then that God is a sadist. I, I just, I don't know how else to say it. It's like, and you get down this very ugly road of like, okay, you know, well, what about the Holocaust? And you say, well, people have free will. People perpetrated the Holocaust, not God. It's like, oh, well, what was God doing all day? Oh, well, it's sort of complicated. It's like, oh, you know, God saved me from that plummeting airplane by making me late for my flight, so I missed it. It's like, but what about the 200 people who were killed? God didn't want to save them, right? I just, I I don't, I'm not doing this, just not doing this. And like, I don't, you know, people want to believe in coincidence. That's fine, but I, I I just resist that and I reject it. However, you know, I do think that there is an animating force in the universe, a force of growth and love and self action actualization. I don't speak very coherently about it. I'm not, you know, once you start talking about it, I think you sound like an idiot. <laughs> it sort of cheapens it, right? I think it's something so much bigger than my tiny little human mind or heart is capable of grasping. Yeah. But, you know, I I feel like there's some force that animates the universe. I feel it as a force of love. And it's funny, you know, I have, I have friends of deep Christian faith, for example. And when I talk to them, I'm sometimes a little, you know, I'm a little unsure about their language. Like I have a friend who will say, you know, I really feel like God was calling me to do X, Y, or Z. And God was telling me, no, this is what you should do. But then I thought to myself, how different is that than me saying, you know, my gut really told me this is what I need to do. Like I really had an intuition that I was called to do X, Y, and Z. Aren't we kind of saying the same thing? Like if if I, I believe that there's a spark of the divine within each of us that we're all striving to honor in some way, like a, a still small inner voice. And isn't she saying the same thing I'm saying, but she's kind of just, it's just a different tweak. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't know, but I don't, 
yeah, the interventionist God, I just, I can't do it. Just can't square it with reality. You know, and then to me, that comes to the question of, okay, then what the hell is the point? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Why bother going to the temple and, you know, tolerating three and a half hours of somebody yelling at me in Sanskrit and and telling me things that don't make any sense. I'll just stay. My parents were stunned to find me reading the Bhagavad Gita. And I said, look, I was like, this book has been referenced in all of my favorite books. So I'm willing to read it because now I want to know. But, you know, I, the thing that I think has bugged me often with my parents, and I, I think I told you about this when we were texting. So for the longest time, uh, we were taught, you don't get your hair cut on Tuesdays. Uh, and nobody would ever explain why. It was the dumbest thing. And I wanted to know why. And my parents were like, well, I don't know. It's just a tradition. That's what we do. And so I went to India and I was staying at an ashram, uh, which is a surf camp. And so I asked my friend Akshay and I asked the guys there, I was like, okay, you guys run an ashram. Maybe you guys know, like, why don't people get their hair cut on Tuesdays? Like, well, barbershops are closed in India on Tuesdays. (laughs) I'm like, wait, what? I was like, that's ridiculous. For our whole lives, we've been taught not to get our haircuts on Tuesdays because barbershops are closed. I was like, all right, let me dig one level deeper into this. Why are barbershops closed on Tuesdays? And of course, when I went to the Quora answers, people, you know, all had answered. And the answers ranged from barbers get tired after cutting hair for so many days in a row. They need a day to sharpen their tools and everybody needs a day off. And Mm. the final one was like, it's a bad omen, but there's no proof of this. And I asked my dad once, I was like, have you ever gotten your hair cut on Tuesdays? He said, yes, I was busy that week. And I was (laughs) like, wait a minute. I'm like, did anything bad happen? He said, no. And I'm like, so this is all nonsense. But for thousands of years, Indians around the world have not gotten their hair cut on Tuesdays. And I still struggle to go do it, even though I'm like, "Ah, nothing bad is going to happen. Because you know what? The moment something does, I'll be like, shit, I shouldn't have gotten my hair cut on Tuesdays. Yeah, look, I hear all of this. I think your your question of like, then why bother? What's the point? Like, yeah, do I think that do I think that one should engage in these religious practices because one will then be rewarded by an interventionist God? No, I don't. But do I think that there is, you know, I think you can. I look at this on two levels. Do I think there is this animating force of love and growth in the universe? I do. Do I think that the world's religions are each in their own very unique and distinctive way? trying to find ways to help people be in touch with that force, align themselves with that force, embody that force of love. I do. I actually think that they have constructive ways of doing this by demanding that people be kind and loving to others, be kind and loving to themselves. I mean, a lot of these practices are focused on helping others and caring for others, right? So I think, I think you know, and are they imperfect? Of course, of course they are. All human systems are imperfect. But I do think that these, if you look at a lot of these traditions, I think they are actually helpful when they're practiced in a loving, compassionate, reasonable way, I think they are helpful for creating greater love and compassion in the world. Yeah. I think a second thing is, you know, I think that they, they can be, you know, they help us make meaning of life. Do you know what right. I mean? Like they, I mean, look, why do you, you know, on your birthday, it's like, why is there a day that's the anniversary of your birth that you have a candle, a cake with candles and you sing a song and you have presents? Like, that's stupid. That's meaningless. Why are you doing that? There's nothing, there's no rational thing there, but like it brings joy and meaning into your life. Like it just does, right? It's, uh-huh. it's a ritual. It's a tradition. It's, you, know, you associate with these rituals, some feelings of joy and connection. And I think that a lot of religious rituals, they do that and they help us mark moments in our lives that are difficult. They give us a way through them. Like I think the Jewish rituals around death and mourning are extraordinary because basically with these rituals, we say to people, Hey, when someone you love dies, you're not okay for a long time. And here are a bunch of rituals whereby the community is going to surround you and support you and walk you through this for the first seven days, then 30 days, then a year, then the rest of your life. These are very helpful rituals that are doing things that I think our secular world just doesn't do for us. Hmm. Well, speaking of rituals, let's talk about the benefits of Shabbat, because I think you went into extensive detail on, on all of these. You know, you mentioned it helps us to stop being control freaks, fight consumerism, materialism, and work holism, you know, have a mini holiday, connect with ourselves, connect with others, and, and develop an inspiring vision of the world. Can you expand on that? I think the reason this struck me in particular is because it, it keeps coming up over and over again in various things that I read, particularly, you know, with a world filled with distraction, there's another book called 24 six where, um, another new Jewish woman actually wrote the book and she had mentioned yeah. you know, the importance of taking a, you know, a day to be just disconnected. And so I thought, you know, as somebody who has had such a demanding career, like what are the benefits of this? Yeah. So I think, you know, modern, the, the sort of overall message of our modern market economy is like, 
you are not enough and you don't have enough. Yeah. You're just not okay as you are. You are not rich enough, successful enough, wealthy, thin, beautiful, accomplished enough. So the solution to that is to keep on working, just keep working, keep working, but it'll never be enough because you're just, it's never enough. That's the message. And what Judaism says is very radical and very countercultural. It says for 25 hours, it's 25, not 24, long, long stories to why it doesn't matter. But from Friday night to Saturday night, you will simply stop. You will no longer be part of this. For this 25 hours, you are not going to be part of the market economy, which says that you're not enough and you don't have enough. You're going to say, you know what? Right now, I have enough. I'm going to just rest. And I think you know, in our market economy, we, we are urged to sometimes rest, right? We're urged to consume le- leisure. But instead of producing, they urge us to consume, right? It's like, oh, take a break from, pursu- from producing. And instead, on the weekend, consume. Watch Netflix. Go to an amusement park. And what Judaism says is, no, 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 don't produce, don't consume, just stop, be present in your life with the one love people around you. Yeah. And, you know, I look at very observant Jews and traditionally observant Jews who do this rigorous Shabbat where they don't use electrical appliances, no screens, no TV, you know, they won't take an elevator, they'll walk upstairs. And I used to think like, really, is that actually restful? Is that actually relaxing? And, but what I realized is they are creating this container that is so makes life so separate from the market workday world. And when I've done it myself, I'm just amazed that when you wake up and it's just so quiet, right? There's no blaring screens, there's no grinding appliances, and you're not spending money and you walk places and it's just creating, time feels different. Time feels palpably different. And you're with, when you're with other people who are doing this, no one's checking their phone, no one's distracting, no one's distracted. Everyone is right there, so present with you. It is the most peaceful relaxing thing I've ever experienced. You know, I, I don't, for many reasons, I don't do it that rigorously anymore, but I do try to capture that to some extent on Friday nights with friends where we really, we go offline, we're with each other and present. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful tradition. Yeah. Well, I think that that was one thing I realized I wanted to ask you about as well is, you know, you mentioned connecting with others. And I was thinking back to a conversation I had with my parents. We actually did an episode where my dad was featured in the episode titled The <laughs> Magic of uh, Meeting People in Person. Oh. Uh, and the thing that really struck me when I was having this conversation with him, I said, do you guys have these two friends that you meet twice a week for dinner? And, you know, they met through, you know, the temple really is a form of community for them also, not just religion, but I was really taken aback by the fact that I was like, wait a minute, you see your two closest friends twice a week. You talk to each other on the phone every day. I shocked if I see my closest friends twice a week. Like we don't, I mean, you know, now that I'm living in Boulder close to my cousin, I see him every week for dinner, but I was kind of stunned that none of my friends were like this. And my dad was like, well, your generation just has different priorities. You know, you have so many activities mm-hmm. going on and all of that. So um, one, I, I wonder if you could address the, the community aspect of religion, because I think that that was one other thing. I heard a doctor give a talk at um, a summit series event. And uh, one of the things he said is that part of what has happened is that, you know, we used to talk to our neighbors um, and, you know, church used to be this place that actually served as a a pathway to community. And we've lost that. And as a result, we're having this thing that is fundamental to our happiness and well-being. Social connection is disappearing for our lives more and more. Yes. I mean, my, my dear friend, Vivek Murthy, who is the Surgeon General under Obama, he has a new book coming out called Together about Mm -hmm. loneliness. And how it is a it's a serious public health crisis, right? People are disconnected, and it's actually affecting not just their mental health but also their physical health. So yeah. I think you've named a huge problem. And I do think there's tremendous value in community because when you are really part of a thick, rich, deep community, you're accounted for in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? I think so many of us are kind of unaccounted for in the world. Right? If something bad happens to us, maybe we have people who can support us, but maybe not. But if you're part of this rich, thick community that you're committed to and you invest in, when something bad happens, they're there. And when something good happens, they're there. I think there is, and and there, you know, I I look at religious communities and they're there in these crisis and transition moments in a way that I just think other communities can't quite be. They don't quite have the tools. But, you know, I think in a, if you're a member of a Jewish community, when you are having a baby, getting married, losing someone you love, going through a crisis, right? There's a whole system of rituals that good date back thousands of years designed to support you. There are rabbis and other leaders with pastoral skills designed to support you. You have a community of people who kind of shares your, your values and understands these rituals that are there for you. And I think it's quite powerful. Personally, though, I just want to be honest. You know, I'm, not, I'm not a member of a traditional synagogue community for a number of reasons. 
but I do have many other Jewish communities in my life and they, they do perform that role for me. Yeah. Well, I want to bring this full circle with uh, probably what was my favorite quote from the book. It was the one that I actually included in a blog post that I wrote. And I remember you, you saw this, but you said, you know, the most celebrated people in American public life today, athletes, business leaders, Hollywood stars, politicians are generally known for their resume virtues, not their eulogy virtues. They're admired for their physical attractiveness, charisma and professional success, not for their kindness, decency and generosity. And I think that the reason I wanted to, you know, come full circle with that is you've really kind of achieved everything according to any you know person's dream resume virtues. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, being able to be the senior staff writer for Michelle Obama is kind of the heights of your career. Uh, in your field, I, you know, beyond being, you know, speechwriter for president, I'm not sure there's any higher that you can climb. So yeah. I wonder with that quote in mind, how you even think about your own career, because you've done the kinds of things that most of us dream of. You've gotten to write the book with the publishers. You've gotten to be, you know, senior staff writer. You're connected to all these amazing people. You've had this amazing life experience. So now having, you know, gone through all of that on the tail end of this with all this stuff done and in the, you know, reflecting on that quote, how do you think about your own success now? Yeah, what a, what a that's a deep question. Um, you know, I think about the resume versus eulogy virtues, and I think that if if I'd only been focused on resume virtues, meaning like the things that most you know without risk look impressive to others, I think that would be a very empty and depressing kind of life. You know, I think I'd probably I don't know. I guess I probably would have never done a political campaign. Right? I would have stuck with law school. I would have kind of gone on this path that I thought looked good, that seemed risk-free, which really wasn't, but it seemed risk-free. And it just would have been really um, very sad. And I I wouldn't have done it. I actually wouldn't have been traditionally successful that way because I just wasn't following what I was good at. Um, But I also think, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the values of American secular life essentially boil down to you do you as long as you don't hurt others. The values of American law are you know, do whatever you want as long as you don't destroy the property or assault the physical body or infringe on the rights of others. These are very low bars that make for a very selfish and kind of individualistic and striving kind of hard life. And, you know, you see people who live by these bars, right? It's just like all they care about is success. And as long as they don't break the law or hurt people, they'll do whatever it takes to get it. Mm. And I don't know, do they have really close friends? Maybe. I'm not sure. Do their friends feel comfortable with them knowing their values? Probably not, right? It makes for a very lonely life. And I think that learning deeply about from a religious tradition, and I think all religious traditions offer this, that really dives down to what it means to be a deeply good person. I've just become more conscious of how I how I speak every day. Right? Judaism puts a huge premium on how you use your words. I'm, I'm much more aware of the fact that I'm, I'm often not kind with my words, and I'm, I'm working on that. Right. I'm much more conscious about Judaism. You know, when when someone is sick or in mourning, you know, Jewish laws basically tells you don't just send them a text, don't just send them flowers. Show up, physically show up with your body and be with them. Get on a plane and go to the funeral. Get to that hospital and just sit by their bedside and just physically be them. It demands this ministry of presence. And I don't think I was very thoughtful about that before I started learning about Judaism. But now I just try to do a much better job of physically being there for people. And, you know, there's sort of a, you know, you could say that the selfless thing to do is altruistic, but I actually think there's something almost selfish about it too, because it's, I gain so much from, from offering that connection, right? It, it just, I feel my relationships deepening. I feel my life being more deep and awe-filled and meaningful. So I think that as I look to the future now, I want to kind of stay on that path of doing what I just feel is deeply meaningful and sort of pursuing that, that deep, that inner voice, right? You can call it God, you can call it your inner voice. I don't, you know, I think we're all talking about the same thing by different names, but I am just very committed to following that, even if it leads me to kind of weird places or places where it looks like it's probably not going to work out. Like that's okay. Uh I think it's, I think it's worth pursuing. Wow. Amazing. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we fit. Yeah all of our interviews that I'm unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Mm, wow. I think it is an unwavering... Let me think about this again. I think it's a deep and unwavering... Well, what is that makes someone unmistakable? What a great question. I think it's a, a deep loyalty 
to pursuing the truth as they see it. And, you know, in a reasonable way, in a way that is effective, I think that's part of it. But I think it is people following that, that still small voice within them, that intuition that says like, mm, this is not right. Or like, Ooh, that seems like something I should avoid or, Oh, wow. That's really where I want to go. You see that, you know, I know authenticity is such a buzzword. It's almost lost meaning, but you see people's loyalty to their own truth and their authenticity, and it manifests in such beautiful ways in the world. So I think that's what makes people unmistakable. Amazing. Uh, well, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Uh, oh my gosh, me too. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Yeah. So I have a website, which is just sarahherwitz.net, S-A-R-A-H-H-U-R-W-I-T-Z.net. And my Twitter account for my book is at here all along. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you're listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.